Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network. Hi everybody, welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the Doctor Who novelizations put out by Target Books from 1973 onward in publication order. We're a member of the Direction Point Doctor Who Podcast Network. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. This is the fourth of ten straight Peter Davison novelizations that we are covering in our Peter Davison mini-season. And I will be devoting more than one episode to the five doctors, so we will have about three straight months of Peter Davison on this show. We are at the end of the first of those months. Terminus is this week's book, and my guest is Stephen Alexander from the Robots in Your Eyes podcast. Stephen was on this show in episode 40, and I'm sorry that it took almost another 40 episodes to get him back on, but there are many quality guests jockeying for my attention, and we are very happy to hear from him again this week. As a minor content warning, we have a lot to say about Terminus and the way that it treats diseases and the way that it treats religion, and as always on this show, there are a multitude of side conversations about those topics, not just limited to the four corners of Terminus, the TV serial, or Terminus, the book. For a show that has already been accused once of having an audience of ghastly woke zombies, quote-unquote, and don't forget to buy the ghastly woke zombies t-shirt from Jim Sangster's excellent Redbubble store, we will be going pretty deep into some hard-hitting topics. If you are sensitive to discussions of religion or illness, you might want to fast-forward at various points throughout the hour that I'm talking with Stephen. I think it's a phenomenal interview, one of the ones that I'm certainly the most proud of, so have at it. We have many, many other guests coming up over the next several weeks. I have a best-selling author on the calendar. I have a member of the Doctor Who extended family on the calendar. I have more black archives and other Doctor Who authors on the calendar. Many of my friends coming back on the calendar, so you do not want to miss any future episode. Please remember to subscribe, or if you can auto-download the episodes on your podcast app of choice. It's a great help to myself in terms of keeping my numbers up, and it's a great help to you in making sure that you don't miss any episodes. Terminus is interesting because it is the first novelization and publication order, at least in terms of my copies, that has a barcode on the back. I have a very funny story about the barcode on the back of the book, Bearing in mind that I started collecting these books in the mid-1980s, before barcode scanners were the norm at retail checkout points in the United States Northeast. This episode is running a little bit long, so I will be bringing that story up at some point in the next few weeks. I will try and pick a shorter episode, because it is a funny story. So remember to ask me about that barcode story, if it doesn't come up in the next few weeks. In the world of Doctor Who news... We were talking in the last couple of weeks about the DVDs and the Blu-rays and the production notes commentary, and I heard back from Paul Schoons, who has been a guest on this show and will be a guest on this show again in the next few months. Paul wrote some excellent DVD production note commentaries on both the original DVDs and the Blu-rays, and Paul sent me a link to 
a blog post that he wrote about researching the Earthshock production notes, and I will put a link to that blog post in the show notes. Fascinating to read because it's basically production notes on the production notes, and a hidden feature to Earthshock that Paul had never noticed before until he began the arduous task of researching that story and writing the production notes for it. Please be sure to check out the show notes for that, and please be sure to stay tuned in the coming weeks and months when Paul makes a welcome return appearance to this program. In other TV Doctor Who news, Bonnie Langford is back, baby. She has been cast. She has been seen out and about filming for the new RTD series. So Mel was a polarizing figure, I gather, in fandom in the mid to late 1980s when she was a regular on the show for the back half of season 23 and all of season 24. As I've mentioned before, growing up as a younger fan in the States in the mid-80s, I would not have been aware of any negative cultural baggage among UK fans. I would not have been aware of any fury around the casting of Bonnie Langford. She was one of the few Doctor Who actors that I already knew when I first saw her on screen. I'll be sure to mention that on this show when the Mel books come up. That's uh, several more months down the line. I think she's terrific. I saw her at Galley this year in 2023. I'm very much looking forward to seeing what she's doing, not least because if you look at the cast list for RTD's next season, you have three legitimate Broadway stars between Bonnie Langford, who was on Broadway as a child, and talked about it along with Matthew Sweet on the, I think it was the season 23 Blu-ray set where they had the hour-long Bonnie Langford interview. Jonathan Groff, who has been cast, has also been a Broadway star. And Jinx Monsoon headlined on Broadway in Chicago. That's an incredible, incredible wealth of talent in terms to be bringing to Doctor Who in the 21st century. Stephen and I will talk a little bit about this over the coming interview. So, since this is going to be a fairly long episode, let's get to it. Do you collect Doctor Who? Do you have Doctor Who items and you don't know that you collect Doctor Who? For all things in the Doctor Who collecting world, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, a Direction Point Network podcast. I am Larry Van Versbergen, your host, and I have been collecting Doctor Who for 41 years. We have popular features like collection protection and the most outrageous offer. Anywhere you get your podcasts. You're listening to Doctor Who Literature and Whatever You Do. Keep turning the pages. Stephen Alexander, the last time I had you back on this show was episode 40, The Horror of Fang Rock, and you ended up giving the longest kissed interview that I have ever recorded, a whole 90 minutes, so there was absolutely nothing to edit out. So let's see how long we can go this time. We're discussing a story that perhaps might not be as beloved as the horror of Fang Rock, but I think there's certainly lots of room for discussion here. But in the meantime, what have you been up to podcast-wise since you and I last recorded? Oh, podcast-wise. Oh, well, firstly, thank you very much for having me on again. Uh, it's I'm, I'm really excited to talk about Terminus because I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to cover. Uh, in terms of what I've been doing myself lately, I've been, I've been proceeding with Robots in Your Eyes, which is our cartoon uh mainly transformers podcast but we are uh so we've we've gone through 
most of the early Transformers up to about 1986. We very recently recorded the movie. So that'll be coming out in a few weeks after this comes out. And then after that, it's series three and four. And then that's it for Transformers. So after that, we're going to start, we're going to have to have to start looking at a wider variety of cartoons. We've already got a couple lined up. We've got Cy Hart, who you may have heard of doing Battle of the Planets. We've got uh, Mark McManus on Defenders of the Earth. Uh, one day we may even get round to uh, Josie and the Pussycats in space. Who knows? <laughs> I would definitely be there for that it's interesting about cartoons because you know in, in real life a generation is about 25 years but with cartoons a generation is maybe about three or five years cartoons are watched by a very specific subset of children of a certain age now of course adults watch cartoons but i think the, the bell curve the large middle of the uh, audience is going to turn over every three to five years which is a long way of saying that I stopped watching cartoons before Transformers was a thing. So I was well aware of them via the toys and via the younger kids discussing them. But watching Transformers was never a key part of my childhood because by the time they came on the air, I was pretty much done with cartoons. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And uh, they... You get you get to that. So like, as an adult, I can watch old cartoons of anything and be perfectly happy with it. As a kid, you get to that age when you're 12 and 13 or 14 or something, and suddenly the cartoons you're watching when you're six or seven seem like old hat, and you just just want to move away from them. So yeah, so I, I can understand it, it not being a part of your childhood in any way if you miss that gap. The exact moment that I stopped watching He-Man and the Masters of the Universe was the same year that I discovered Doctor Who and then Dark Shadows on Twilight Zone all at once. And once you get to live action science fiction, now I will say that I saw the first Transformers movie, the Michael Bay movie in the theater with such diverse talent as John Turturro and Bernie Mac. But that's probably, I've probably seen that movie of all my Transformers knowledge, 98% of it comes from that film, which probably is not a good position to be in. <laughs> uh, well, it's a whole nother world, and uh, the uh, franchise has transformed considerably since its original uh, version. But it's 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 oddly similar in a way for me, because I, I progressed from Transformers, and then there was this odd period where the Transformers comic strip in Marvel Comics UK crossed over with a Doctor Who comic strip, which was also being published by Marvel at the same time. And you get that one issue where Death's Head turns up, who's a character very familiar to the uh, Marvel Comics readers. So in a way, I had a similar kind of transition from Transformers into Doctor Who via this bizarre comic link. I had a similar reaction. So there was a two-year run of a dedicated Doctor Who Marvel comic in the U.S., and it was colorized reprints of the DWM comic strips. So I didn't discover this until the very end of the range. So I got issues 20, 21, 22, and then at New York Comic-Con right before the pandemic, I got the final issue, issue 23. So about half the book was the DWM strip. I came in in the middle of the uh, Stockbridge horror, Peter Davison, having just missed... Tides of Time, which I later got to read as a trade paperback reprint. And then the rest of it was other backup strips featuring villains without the Doctor, such as Celestial Toymaker, and then editorials and letters pages and advertisements. In one of the 
DWM strips towards the end of the Stockbridge horror cycle, Spider-Man shows up in this U.S. Doctor Who Marvel comic. And I had been, of course, a big Spider-Man fan going back to age three or four when the 1966 Spider-Man TV cartoon was still in heavy rotation in American syndication. And, of course, I lived a few miles over from Queens where Peter Parker was from. So Spider-Man was my childhood favorite. And when he showed up in one panel in a Doctor Who strip, it was a really strange vibe. I imagine it has to be the same having Transformers show up in the Doctor Who world. Oh, yes, yes. No, it, it, well, I kind of accepted it at the time because Marvel just did crossovers. You know, if it was a Marvel property, a Marvel property. So he, Spider-Man, so he, he, he bothered the Transformers as well. He webs up Megatron at one point, which is all very exciting. Uh, yes, but I think Stockbridge Horror and those early comic strips are so good. They're so fantastic. And uh, there is that period where it surpasses what we had on TV to some extent, where the comic strips are lyrical and interesting, going to all these bizarre places, and the TV show is great, but the comic strips are just a, a step above. So, yeah. So I, I do think we see that. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to link into Terminus with some of the uh, middle Peter Davison era and the Colin Baker era, where you get Magnificent Voyager comic strip which i want to do a podcast on someday somehow but i don't know if i'll ever get there um but yeah yeah so so yeah so the, the, those comic strips and the marvel crossover stuff are just fantastic i've heard it said that the best six doctor companion was frobisher who was comics only although of course later made his way into the audios and the uh, 1990s novels but of course now that mel is back on the main show and has been recast as a hopefully a uh, semi-regular in the second RTD era. Maybe Frobisher is about to take second place. <laughs> yes, it is. I they they okay. They they brought back Mel. I uh, okay. Uh, that's such wonderful and unexpected news. But it's just another slice of. Oh my god! I'm so excited for the new series of Doctor Who. It's it's really it's got its claws back in. Uh, even though I'm a huge fan of the Chibnall and Jodie Whittaker era, I think this is just like this is just really going for the jugular of popularity and uh, getting everyone back watching it again. You have three legitimate Broadway headliners now appearing all in the same series because you have Jonathan Groff Hamilton. You have Jinx Monsoon, Chicago, and you have Bonnie Langford, who was starring on Broadway as a child. So that's an incredible level of talent, and it makes you wonder who else from the Broadway world is going to cross over into the second or third RTD2 seasons. Well, yes. Well, there's there's a, a, an embarrassment of riches to choose from. I'm not I'm not big on I don't know I don't know my uh, Broadway musical actors, so I I don't know who who you could go for, but I'm sure there are plenty of exciting choices well having just seen josh groban and sweeney todd on broadway last week i'm now hopeful that he will make his way into the tardis excellent yes yes so much to look forward to it's in it's once again it's an insanely exciting time to be a doctor who fan and yeah yeah i just i i, I really yeah i i don't want to rush time along but i can't wait for november you know i want to enjoy the now but oh god i can't wait for november so speaking of so much to look forward to and speaking of insane excitement of all the stories in the Doctor Who universe that I could have asked you on, 
and bearing in mind that last time you were in one of my top ten, Horror of Fang Rock, we now find ourselves on board Terminus. <laughs> so, when did you first see Terminus on television, and what was your initial reaction? Well, this is one I saw very late, and this is something I, I want to talk about a little bit about, because Terminus re- Terminus's reputation preceded it by a huge amount, but there was nothing to go on. So coming at it from the perspective of somebody who joined with Sylvester McCoy, what you had is you had this orange book with two photographs that just don't mesh together in any way on the cover, which gives away literally nothing. So yeah, so you've got the Black Guardian and you've got Peter Davison with like, he looks really bored and he's standing in front of this lever. Heaven knows what this book is about. And it's bigger and thicker than the other books. And it's 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 really intriguing because obviously there's it's it's really dark and bleak, the reputation suggests. And also, it's absolutely dreadful. That is what you pick up. You know, Terminus is, it's in nobody's top 10. It's in everybody's bottom 10. It's it's this, but but that just makes it all the more interesting because how can it be so bad? Did you see Terminus first or did you read the novelization first? I, uh, okay, so this is where my memory fails me. There's a lot of Doctor Who stories. <laughs> um, I... I'm, I I probably, I'm very likely that I read the novelization first because I was collecting the novels for a long time. So I probably read it first. I don't recall it being one I got out from the library because they didn't have it in uh, Croxley Green Library. So I must have bought it. Uh, but I can't, I can't recall if it was, and I should have done my research, if it was reprinted when they were doing the nice covers with the sort of Alistair Pearson era covers. Uh, I don't think it was, was it? So let's see. Um, I'll give you my origin story as a a long way of answering that question. Good. You know that I got into Doctor Who with season 19 and 20 airing on PBS, 25 minutes a night. So the first thing that I saw was a snippet of Time Flight Part 1. The second thing that I saw was the back half of Arc of Infinity Part 2. So my first cliffhanger is Arc of Infinity Part 2. I know that I saw all of Arc of Infinity Part 4 and enjoyed it, and then I didn't turn on the TV again for another week. So the next thing I would have seen after Arc of Infinity Part 4 was Maudron Undead. Then the Maudron Undead Part 3 cliffhanger, and then following after that, it was the Enlightenment Part 1 cliffhanger. After Enlightenment Part 1, I was I was hooked. I, was ne- I, never, I never voluntarily missed an episode after Enlightenment Part 1. So I managed to miss all of Snake Dance, and I managed to miss all of Terminus when they originally were streamed on my PBS in late 1984. So by the time they cycled back around, they did all seven seasons of Tom Baker, and then ran Peter Davison again. By this time, they've moved the show from 7 p.m., which is prime time, to 11.30 p.m., which of course was after my bedtime. The only time that I could watch now is on Friday night. So I was only watching one out of every five. So I know I saw Castro Valva Part 4. I know I saw Kinda Part 1. I know I saw Earthshock Part 1. I saw Terminus Part 2. That was the only Terminus that I saw probably my first five years as a fan. And Terminus wow. Part 2, you know, not going to make it 
you're excited to be watching the show as a kid, but it's not going to make a tremendous impression on you in a positive way. So I know the book I got kind of early on, but as you say, it's the longest book in a while. It's 159 pages, and of course it starts on page 5, so it's 155 pages of text. It's the longest book in eight years. I'll explain a little bit more about that on the second half of the show. And it doesn't have any chapters, and as a 12-year-old, that's kind of intimidating because chapters are where you put the book down for the night. Chapters are where you say, okay, this is the cliffhanger. This is the end of part one, we'll say. I'm going to stop reading here. You don't have that. So I read the first 20 pages of the book a lot. I don't think I finished the book for several years. You know, I was getting two books every two weeks, and it got to yeah. a point where I had more books than I could reasonably read. So for a while in the mid-'80s, I was collecting books, reading chapter one. And then not finishing them for a long time. So Terminus, I didn't see for the longest time. Terminus, the book, I didn't finish for the longest time. So yeah, it I, really I, made no impression on me at all, my first you know, three or four years of fandom. <laughs> yes, yes. It, it, it sort of sits there as this thing that, you know, I, I, in a way, one day you're going to have to tackle and watch Terminus because it's part of the Black Guardian trilogy. It's got an interesting story in front of it, which is Mordred and Undead with the Brigadier. It's got an interesting story after it, which has got the spaceships and Tegan in that frock ballroom dress thing, which has got a lot of publicity photos. But there's this kind of gap in the middle of, of mysteriousness, which is which is kind of exciting, I guess. Um, I do remember that um, they did the VHS releases and I got Mordred Undead very early on, but I missed Terminus Enlightenment for a long time afterwards. So I didn't see them, them for absolutely ages. So yeah, so, so it's one I came to very late. And... The novel, you said, yeah, it doesn't have chapters. It's not a very generous novel. It doesn't give you much. It doesn't even really describe the background of the regulars. It kind of assumes that you know who Tegan and Turlow is, or that you've read Mordred Undead at least. So it's very Which, I'm going to jump in. That's yes. an odd vibe because this is Turlow's first book. So <laughs> you have no idea what's going on if you're only reading the books because – this is his first novelization, and it picks us up in the middle of his arc. <laughs> yeah. Also, Mordred Undead came out after this. Yep. Yeah? Several months after this. Yes. Several months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it it doesn't. I mean, it it hints at his schoolboy past and the fact that he's a new companion, but it doesn't do the nice Terence Dix thing of giving you half a paragraph saying this person is like this and they do this thing, they've joined this, and so on and so forth. So. It's very, yeah, yeah. As I say, it's not very generous in that respect. And it doesn't tell you what he's wearing. It doesn't give you a whole lot of context. Now, of course, we're fans of the show. We're not reading these only in book form, only as they come out. So we know who he is already. But just in terms of this podcast, only going in publication order, I do find it strange. And then you talk about the cover, right? So. This has been a, we're in the middle of a Peter Davison season on this show. This is like the fourth of ten straight Davison books, and this is because Davison had vetoed the use of any painting with him. So you could only use photographic covers, and the photographic covers sold like hotcakes, flying off the shelves. The books are reprinting faster than ever. They've got their American distribution. Terminus is the first novelization with a barcode on the back. So this is the moment when we finally join the earliest outliers of the 21st century, okay? So this is Doctor Who's Peak, and the clip art cover with the two characters lit from completely the wrong angle, not 
depicting any particular TV scene because the Doctor and the Guardian don't meet in the story. I don't think Terminus ever got a Blue Spine reprint. So I don't collect the Blue Spines. Looking at the list now, I don't think Terminus ever got one. So unless there was a VHS cover, this mm. is never a book where you're going to get a proper Alistair Pearson painting. Yeah, yeah. And the VHS cover is not very good, but it it's, gives you slightly more than you'd seen before because there's this guy in this weird armour and there's a big skull and, and what on earth does it all mean? It's all uh, it's all very mysterious, unless you've seen the story, in which case you're kind of not really, yeah, not really there. I don't know. Um, yeah, but there's only one other... I, I had a look at authors who don't use chapters and the only example that came up was actually Terry Pratchett, who doesn't use chapters for his Discworld books, which is interesting because his Discworld books are incredibly accessible. They have a wide ranging appeal, but they don't have chapters either. So it's, yeah, yeah, it's just like, do you use chapters or not? I think most, you know, it makes it easier to read, but as a style thing, why would you decide not to use chapters? It's it's really intriguing. I don't think there's any reason why Terminus, in particular, doesn't have chapters apart from Stephen Gallic, oh, John Lydicker rather, um, being being a bit clever. But uh, but yeah, but I, I it's it, it's just a, a, an oddity of this book. There's kind of a science to chapter titles, and you can define a lot of authors by what they choose to title their chapters. So in the New Adventures and in the similar book lines of the 1990s, everybody is taking their favorite pop songs and turning them into chapter titles. In Legacy, Gary Russell's first book, every chapter title is a Gary Newman song. Terence Dix, of course, is famous for almost every book has a chapter called Escape to Danger. John Peel, in the novelization of Evil of the Daleks, has two titles with the exact same chapter. I think both chapter four and chapter seven are both called the net Titans, which is, I think he later admitted was an editing error. So you are missing a chance to put your personality on the book when you don't have chapters. And then when the chapters don't have titles. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think Despite that, there is a huge. I mean, this is this is like very Stephen Gallagher. This is very John Lydicker, uh, which is his pen name. Because if you look at the kind of stuff he did after this for TV, you've got two notable ones. There's one called uh, October, and there's another one called Chimera. And Chimera is uh, a terrifying, bleak uh, story of medical mispractice where they've created a human ape hybrid and they've got this this horrendous looking monster and it's it's a really dark but it's a really really good and well-made series uh if you haven't seen it um but yeah but that you can see that this is the kind of thing that Stephen Gallagher excels at and does really well because the bleakness of Terminus is is absolute even though in the end interestingly nobody there's no big explosion not many people die and they have a kind of happy ending with with like a real positive way forward. So I, I think there is a lot of him in this book, uh, despite the lack of chapter titles. A lot of extras, the Lazar disease patients, are implied to die in the process of this very haphazard for-profit healthcare cure. Do any named characters die 
in terminus? That's an interesting question. Yeah, I, I I think one of two. I think one of the veneer dies. But uh, yes, I should have made better notes. But yes, anyway, yes. No, there, there aren't any major death scenes. There's a couple of fight sequences, but there's no actual uh, ending where the bad guy gets pushed off a cliff or whatever. So yeah, so it's it's not big. It's not a bloodthirsty story by any means. The bad like, guys in Terminus, so to speak, are off screen. The company is evil, but we never see them or their representatives. And the only antagonist among the Vanir is the middle manager, who is a middle manager and not actively evil in and of itself. He's just trying to handle a really bad administrative situation. Um, but in terms of why Terminus does not have a great reputation, if you remove the score, if you take away the Roger Lim music, and if you hire Patty Kingsland to do for this story what he did for Castrovalva or Modrin or Frontios, does Terminus get a lot better merely if the incidental music is entirely swapped out? Well, this is what I wanted to discover by revisiting Terminus in book form. And I'm afraid the answer is it's not that great. It's got a lot of problems and a lot of structural issues and it doesn't get under the skin of its characters. And yeah, yeah, it's, it, I think that it's already, you know, with a great production, it could have been interesting if it had been done like Warrior's Gate, but I, I, I don't think it's a winner. I, th- I think it's, it, it's not that good, it, but there's a lot of good things in it. What do you think are the structural problems in the story? I'll have some interesting comments to make about the structure when I do my audio essay at the end, but I want to get your take before I play that part. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I I did want to go into a bit of detail, so I may repeat a lot of what you've said in the audio essay, but uh, in advance, it's just that they, they arrive, they're on the spaceship with the liner, and then they spend ages getting off the liner, and then they arrive at Terminus, and then there's not enough time to really explore what's going on with the veneer or so on and it's there's not enough time to have like the garm being properly terrifying so the garm which was uh, I, they say in the interviews with stephen gallagher he said he gave them a gift because it just had to be a pair of red eyes but given what it has to do in the story there's no way they could have done that it has to turn up and it has to have the control panel and it has to walk around and talk to people and, you know, move Nyssa from place to place. So that doesn't really that that doesn't really work, unfortunately. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it just it it just doesn't present the situation and the characters and then explore it and then end. There's too much time get, just getting out of the damn liner and crawling around through the uh, ducts which uh, Tegan and Turlow spend most of the time doing, and they, they're they really sidelined in this story. So that's all very weak. Uh, I presume you drew some similar conclusions? My suspicion is that this would have been pitched before Turlow was a character, because it's only his second story. And this is something that you often find with brand-new companions. They have to be sidelined from their second story, because the second story was broken down and plotted and drafted before that character was announced as a regular. So Jamie spends a large portion of the moon base on a gurney not interacting with the plot. K-9 in his second story is only seen in the opening and closing TARDIS scenes. It'll happen later on in the books too, where Bernice Summerfield's second book, she walks out of the TARDIS, is possessed, and then is off camera for the next 150 pages. So you can't necessarily blame Terminus for, for that, 
But if Turlo is going to be off screen for most of the story, he needs to have somebody to talk to. You only have the Black Guardian for one day of filming. So that means Tegan has to join him, and the two of them have to be sidelined. That's not necessarily a problem that we can blame on Stephen Gallagher. That might just be a necessity of production. Hmm. I do find it weird that Tegan and Turlo never get onto Terminus and never interact with the main plot at all, although this is, of course, hardly the only Doctor Who story where that happens. Yeah, yeah. There, there is another oddity because there's there's a couple of, I, taking what I can out of the book, there's a couple of little bits. So there's one moment early on where Tegan and Turlo are together and Tegan says something and Turlo blushes because she's kind of pinned him down. And that almost implies that there's a bit of interest there between them. But then later on, there's a whole paragraph where Turlo is casually saying, well, if I were to push Tegan down this lift shaft and murder her, then I could tell the doctor that that was an accident and then that would have got her out of the way. Which, uh, firstly, contradicts any thought that there might be something between them. And secondly, for me, is if you've got a companion doing that, they're kind of irretrievable as a good, nice companion later on. That contemplating the murder, I, I know he's supposed to kill the doctor, but contemplating the murder of another companion in that way, I think is a step too far. We don't really get that in the uh, in the TV version. I don't know. What do you think? To sort of answer your question, I think Turlow works because of the actor who plays him. Mark Strickson brings such incredible intensity and there are some stories where he's a part of the plot like frontios or enlightenment and there are other stories where he's just there as a third wheel like this story and warriors of the deep the stories where he is a third wheel so the plan was to make turlo the unreliable possibly evil companion who gets reformed by being in the doctor's presence there's a big discontinuity between Turlow's story arc on TV and Turlow's story arc in the books because going in publication order, like I said, this is his first book. And then Modern and Enlightenment come out later. So his story in the books is being told out of order. Modern Undead, the novelization, is written as if Terminus, the novelization, has not happened yet. So both Gallagher and Grimwade take different approaches to Turlow's moral evolution. So in the book, Turlow wants to kill Tegan to prove himself to the Black Guardian, and he figures out the way to do it, but then Tegan saves his life when he almost falls through the bottom of the liner and drops to his death. And that is the moment where he sort of starts to realize, wait a minute, maybe I'm backing the wrong horse. Those two things don't happen on TV. There's no moment on TV where he's about to kill her and where he's saying, I'll just tell the doctor it was a terrible accident. And there's no moment on TV where Tegan saves his life from a bottomless pit. I guess that was unfilmable, perhaps. So when you watch the TV versus you watch the book, it's two different characters entirely. I think I prefer the Turlo of the book because Gallagher, writing as Lidecker, narrates many scenes from his point of view. Yeah. And again, it's a different story arc than the television. On television, they're climbing through the underflooring and they have a couple of bizarre conversations and then that's it. The book, 
because it's 20 pages longer than just about every other target of the decade, adds a lot more meat to the bone. So if you're asking me what I think of Turlo's character, I think it works a lot better on the printed page. Oh, yes, yes. It it does come to life in a, in a different way. Although, again, Mark Strickson does does a wonderful job creating that life from uh, from what he's given. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's very interesting with Tegan as well because, uh, like, right from the very first – the first paragraph is about Tegan, and it's giving her a kind of it, almost an interiority. It's giving her perspective, and, you know, she's it's what she thinks about Turlo, how she doesn't trust him. And all this kind of uh, psychological stuff's really interesting. And there's another fantastic bit later where Turlow says that Tegan of the three was easiest to manipulate because he only had to annoy her and she'd run off in a huff. And I thought that, that was a particularly <laughs> wry observation from uh, from Gallagher. Absolutely. I'm going to be quoting that in full during the audio essay, by the way. You hit the nail on the head there. <laughs> yeah, that, that bit really jumped out at me. Uh, yeah, so the characters... But then... It starts off with Tegan's perspective, but this should kind of be Nissa's story. And one of the big issues with the characterization is that the people who contract the Lazarus disease lose their energy. And we see the Lazarus, we see them walking down the corridor, but because none of them, very few of them speak, I think there's one who speaks, we don't understand them. We don't empathize with them they're in a way they're just another doctor who monster they're just these bandaged people walking through that you've got to avoid because they might be infectious so yeah so so that's that lack of character for those people which is awful because they are the center of the novel it's what's happening to these people that's the main thing we get a kind of gateway with it with nissa but but she's she is one of the flattest Doctor Who companions, I dare say. Although people really love her, she's she's just not got enough character or personality. She's very, she can be very dry. Uh, I, 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 what what do you think about Nissa? I think she has unlimited potential. She's one of the smartest mm. people the Doctor has ever travelled with, along with Romana too, and along with Doctor. Elizabeth Shaw. You could do anything with Nyssa. And later on, in the expanded media, they do. They bring her back as an older character in Big Finish. There is a Peter Darvel Evans novel, I think, where she rejoins another Doctor post-Terminus and has another adventure with a past Doctor. The name of that book, of course, is escaping me at the moment, but I think it was set in medieval England. Let's go to the fact machine and figure that one out. Yep. <laughs> and we are back from the fact machine, which is a plot device that I have shamelessly stolen from Darren Mooney's excellent The 250 movie podcast. So it was a past Doctor adventure written by Peter Darvel Evans, who had been the original editor of the New Adventures line. And now he's writing for BBC Books. And it's the fourth Doctor teaming up with Nyssa, who in story terms he would not have met yet. And they go to England in the 13th century and solve a scientific mystery. So you can do incredible things with Nyssa, right? Yeah. On television, they don't. <laughs> because of contractual issues, she had to be written out of two episodes in the middle of Kinda, which follows hard on the heels of Forda Doomsday, where she spends the middle two episodes also just about 
out of commission, about to be turned into an android. In The Visitation, she does get her own subplot, where she gets to uh, build the sonic booster that destroys the android, and the novelization covers that part of it very well, by the way. Black Orchid is nominally about her, and she gets to perform double duty, but in Earthshock, she is confined to the TARDIS console room. In Season 20, she for a while becomes the only companion, and she gets to do some pretty great things in Ark of Infinity, which I will explore in next week's episode. But then right after that, Tegan rejoins and Turlo comes on board, and all of a sudden Nissa is once again out of things to do. So Eric Sayward takes this gift of a companion and decides to use her by largely ignoring her and sidelining her and third-wheeling her. And that's another shame because she's the only non-abrasive companion in the Peter Davison era. Tegan is there to fight with the Doctor and Adric. Adric is there to whine and join up with the bad guys and potentially upend the entire plot and quarrel well, with Tegan. Turlo yes, comes on board trying to kill the Doctor. And then when Perry comes on board, the Sixth Doctor literally tries to strangle her in his first few moments of existence. Nissa is the only companion who doesn't fit that mold. So... Nyssa should have been the Doctor's ally on the TARDIS, should have been his best friend, should have been his Romana too, should have been his Doctor Elizabeth Shaw, and she's not. And that's a really good point that I hadn't raised, and I can promise you that I don't cover it in the audio essay. You are right, this book should have opened on Nyssa, because the story closes on her. And instead, it opens with the, the, the Turlo and Tegan material, which is fine, because it's part of the story arc, but yes, Nyssa had, should have had the first scene, Nyssa should have been the first one to speak. Yes, and I think, I, coming back to what you say a little bit, Nyssa is very much a Bidmead companion in terms of the scientific interest and leading the story through science, whereas Tegan's much more of a Sayward companion with just being antagonistic and generating drama. So you can see why Sayward was uh, drawn towards Tegan and possibly Adric. Uh, well, he I clearly enjoyed killing Adric, so, uh, you know, there's uh, <laughs> elements of that. But yeah, so so that is a shame. And it's also a real shame that he didn't change. Because you can change things in the novel, and you can change it so that Nissa's skirt, Nissa doesn't take her skirt off. But that's still in there. And that was uh, coming to it now and thinking, well, maybe he's, he's, he's changed that a bit. No, he hasn't. And that, that was slightly disappointing. Even though there's kind of a reason for it, but it's still very silly. I will defend Gallagher here. There's only two fleeting references to Nissa taking off her skirt. She steps into the shadows, she fumbles with her bodice, and then there's a metallic clanging sound on the floor. Something falls off. Whereas on television, there is a... It's kind of embarrassing, although when I was a teenage boy, I thought it was the greatest thing ever. There's this embarrassing shot of Nissa in the recovery room, lying down in her undergarments or her lingerie, with the camera pointing straight through her legs, which is a really you. bizarre shot compared to the rest <laughs> of Doctor Who. That shot is not described in those terms in the book, and it never actually is made explicit that she's walking around in a slip. Yeah. So I think Gallagher nods to it in the book very briefly, but he doesn't play it up the way the television does. Yes. And obviously on television, as soon as somebody takes an item of clothing on, you can see that they haven't got that item of clothing on pretty much whenever they're on screen. But in a book, you have to actually say that uh, and remind people. 
so yeah, so that's so that's Nyssa. But there's a lot of other interesting stuff in here, and the the Lazar's disease is also fascinating because I, I've done my I, I have to go into my background research. I've done some research into actual real leprosy. Uh, which is also known as Hansen's disease, uh, which is a because I, I didn't know much about leprosy, so I wanted to find out for the purposes of today. Um, which I've got as it's a bacterial infection. Um, one of the things that happens in the in the story is that Nissa is infected, despite the fact that a bandaged hand comes out and clamps itself around Tegan's face. So you think Tegan would be the one who's more likely to be infected, which is bizarre. The, but with real leprosy, it requires close and frequent contact with the infected person. Uh, it affects the skin and peripheral nerves. And in the world today, there's like 200,000 new cases of it every year, which are largely in Southeast Asia. So this disease is far from eradicated, even though the World Health, the World Health Organization, the doctors who, so to speak, are uh, aiming for target zero with cases. They are aiming to eliminate it. It is treatable with a combination of drugs. Um, But the radiation treatment is more associated with cancer or a different kind of disease. So that's very strange that he's taken these two elements and put them together. Um, I was just a couple of other things to say. So the leprosy obviously appears in the Bible and there's a lot of historic references to leprosy, but apparently that could be any kind of skin disease that's mentioned there, you know, this syphilis or, or, or any kind of thing that causes skin issues. And it's always associated with impurity. So that's key to the story as well, that the, the Lazars are bundled together on the ship because they're viewed as impure or, or something along those lines. They're, they're impure or lesser and nobody wants to touch them. Uh, which is why they can be put on these ships and sent off to be treated at Terminus in such a such an appalling way. Uh, so some of the ancient treatments for leprosy are also quite interesting because in Greece and China, they used to treat them with baths, baths in the blood of children or virgins were particularly favoured. Uh, yes, and they'd be treated variously with cobra, uh, venom, bee stings or frogs or other things. Um, Leper colonies are a real thing, so but they used to send people with all manner of skin diseases, as I sort of said, to these leper colonies. Uh, and they've been going till fairly recently as well. There was one in Crete near Greece, uh, which closed in 1957. And in 2001, there were some Japanese leprosy colonies that came under close scrutiny for mistreatment of patients, which is probably closer to what is happening in Terminus. Um, but yeah, so so this thing is a very real disease and you wouldn't necessarily pick out because Lazar, it comes from the word Lazarus. So that's another b- biblical reference. So you have Lazarus who was resurrected from the dead. But uh, the fact that one of the characters at one point says, it's a leper ship, plaints it up front what the uh, what they're trying to achieve here so yeah so so hopefully uh, you haven't covered all of that in your uh, in your essay but um but i thought all of that to put that in some kind of context was really interesting even though i think as a metaphor for leprosy it's odd and it doesn't quite fit in my view um i don't know what, what do you think jason one of the signal moments of my childhood is every Easter, the American network ABC would air the Cecil B. DeMille Bible epic, The Ten Commandments. 
And since that also fell on the holiday of Passover, my mother, my mother would make a point to watch it every year. And it was four hours long, and I would often watch bits of it, but never the whole thing, because I didn't have the stamina to watch a four-hour film with commercial breaks. But it basically tells the story of Exodus from a Christian rather than a Jewish point of view. The, the director, Cecil B. DeMille, having become, I believe, an evangelical Christian, or whatever version of that there was in the 1950s. What's interesting is that that was not Cecil B. DeMille's first time directing the Ten Commandments. There is also a silent movie version of it made in the early 1920s. When Ten Commandments came out in a deluxe DVD edition about 15 years ago, they, include, they included the silent film. Now, the remake, Charlton Heston, Yul Brunner, Edward G. Robinson, all-star cast. The remake, four hours long, technicolor, shot on location, millions of extras, only takes place inside the book of Exodus. And it starts off with baby Moses, and it goes through Moses' career as a high-ranking officer in the Egyptian temple, and then he gets uh, selected by God, there's the Exodus, there's the Ten Commandments. In the original silent film version, only the first third of the movie takes place in biblical times. The Most of the movie takes place in the present day, where the movie was shot and set, 1920s California. And it follows two brothers, and they make a bet, because one of them is very Christian and one of them is not. And they make a bet, I'm going to live my lives by the Ten Commandments. And the other one says, I'm going to live my lives by the opposite of the Ten Commandments, and we will see who has a better life. And it starts off, the evil brother is much more successful in love and business but it turns out because he is cheating and stealing and because his girlfriend is a biracial woman of partial, Asian, of partial Asian descent, which was the worst thing you could be in 1920s America. So that character is sort of the uh, catalyst for ruining his life. Everything falls apart for the bad guy and the character who adheres to Christianity and the Ten Commandments is the character who is successful. And the evil brother contracts leprosy because back in biblical times it was seen as a moral biblical judgment and not an easily cured infectious disease. And this 1920 Cecil B. DeMille movie sides with leprosy being an, a moral judgment that you get for being a bad person, which is the exact opposite of what it is. And the book literally ends, sorry, the movie, I should say, the movie literally ends with Jesus coming down from the heavens and saving our characters. So you can see why the 1950s version of the movie did not do that, and it jettisoned the modern-day part entirely. So Jesus is only an unspoken presence in the second, more famous version of the movie. But I would encourage you to watch the original silent film version of Ten Commandments. It's fascinating. The Egyptian sequence is incredible considering that it's made over 100 years ago, in some ways it's technically more impressive than the second version of the film. But the modern-day stuff, where leprosy is a moral failing, is completely regressive storytelling, and it's racist, and it's just wrong in every way. So it's fascinating to watch just from that lens alone. Terminus does not do that. Stephen no. Gallagher uses heavy Christian symbolism in the novelization. It's probably one of three or four books that has more Christian symbolism than anything else. 
but he's not writing from this perspective where Lazarus' disease is a moral failing. It's more a failing of the parents and the for-profit healthcare sector. The parents are embarrassed, so they pay a lot of money to send their children off on this mystery cure. The book establishes that the cure works, and there are clean boats that take the survivors away. And the Garm says in the book, most survive. And on television, the Garm says many survive. Mm. The problem is that we don't get any Lazarus perspective. You're right. There is this character on television. She's called Inga in the credits, but she's not named on screen. And she doesn't have a name at all in the book. That should have been one of our audience identification characters. Instead, we only see Terminus through the eyes of the Vanir, who are convicted felons and, and slave laborers. I think Terminus could have been two stories. You do one story about the way we treat illness as a moral failing rather than an infectious disease that can be cured, and about the critique of the for-profit healthcare. And then you do a second unrelated story elsewhere in the season about a time machine that inadvertently caused the destruction of the original universe and created the new one, and now it's all happening again because the engine's about to eject into the void. That's two stories. I'm not sure they fit together. In the book, it works because Gallagher is one of the best writers, technical writers, the Target books ever had. It doesn't quite work on television because the two stories don't connect in any meaningful or thematic way. No, I completely agree with that assessment. It is, it is totally out of nowhere. I mean, like if Terminus was going to explode because one of the, it was leaking radiation that's enough. That's fine for the story. That's absolutely okay. And the image of this uh, old veneer stacking up bits of junk in front of the leaking radiation to try and stop it is fantastic. That's so that's so uh, lyrical and, and interesting. But no, and to throw in it as a kind of uh, almost a bit of, uh, it, it's just a sprinkling of interest that it created the universe rather than having it as a huge plot point that's really important is it's just it's just silly to be honest it really is just silly and it it it's it's a real sh it's a real shame that it's in there i think because because the Lazar stuff is so yeah there's so much potential there there's so much they can do with that but it's the same with the Norse mythology elements so you have the Garm and Ragnarok and all this kind of stuff. So the Garm is supposed to be this this dog beast uh, who who appears at Ragnarok and kills the gods, and and um, all the Vanir names are kind of based on Norse mythology. But there's no link between. I don't think I could find between the characters in Norse mythology and the characters we see on screen. Um, it's really kind of like just there as as uh, dressing. So yeah, so that's all of that's disappointing those elements really interesting you mentioned that because i don't think the same way that the leper colony and the for-profit healthcare fatigue critique don't really fit in the same story as the end of the universe spaceship i'm not sure that mashing up all this christian symbolism with norse mythology works either we haven't covered kinda yet kinda came out first on tv but comes out later in the novelizations Kinda starts off as a Buddhist parable, and then when Eric Sayward takes over the show, the story becomes a lot more Christian. So it's snakes and apples in paradise. And no offense to adherents of the religion, but the story of Christianity has been told. It's not exactly a secret. 
You don't need to use yeah. Doctor Who to explore it, whereas most folks in the West don't know all that much about Buddhism. I think it's more interesting to tell a story from the point of view of a religion that is not quite as prominent in the media and pop culture in our respective countries. So if Kinda had just been a story about Buddhist principles, and arguably Snake, Snake Dance will do it better, I might have enjoyed it more than I did. Instead, it's the same old familiar Christian tropes again. Mm. Same deal with Terminus. If Terminus had just been a story exploring Norse mythology and Norse perspectives on Ragnarok and perhaps the way they treated the ill in their culture, that might have been special. But as it is, as you say, Lazarus disease, Lazarus, yeah. it's not exactly subtle. <laughs> I think sometimes you can get a synergy between these ideas if you get like you're mixing up different mythologies to create a new mythology and it adds to the weight of the myth. But I think in this case, it doesn't work. Um, if you allow me to go off on one for a moment with, with a pet, pet theory. That's um, why I have you on the show. You go <laughs> off on one better than any of my other guests. I can walk away for 20 minutes and come back and you would still be wrapping it up in a very, very effective way. <laughs> I am um, I'm getting my practice in that's what I'm doing I'm practicing my, my podcasting skills but anyway so this is something that not been mentioned by Stephen Gallagher in any interview I could find but in given the time and given what was going on in the world it kind of seems like an obvious link but I am just reading into it here so it's not about leprosy it is works better as an AIDS analogy mm. because people with AIDS in the 80s were stigmatized and they were marginalized in the most horrendous way. And then the ending makes more sense because once they started doing proper research into the drugs rather than being frightened of the, uh, uh, you know, being frightened of gays, being frightened of people with bad morals who were catching AIDS and having sex when they shouldn't. When they started researching it properly, there were ways they could combat the virus, and they could, like, I, when I when I was young, we saw the adverts on telly. I didn't know what sex was because I was too young, but I I knew that AIDS was a death sentence. I knew that 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 was it. You know, you get AIDS, you've got a short time to live, but that's no longer true because of the change in attitude. And that's what happens with Nissa at the end. She says, look, we don't have to be frightened. We don't have to do this in this way. We don't have to treat people like cattle like this. We can actually, with the right drugs and the right effort and going and doing it properly, we can make this a much better place. We can treat people. And and she solves the hydromel problem as well, which is kind of brilliant, um, but nothing to do with the AIDS metaphor. So that, taking it from that perspective, and how, given that these adverts were on the telly, it was a huge thing. How could it not have filtered into Stephen Gallagher's imagination in some way, even if it was just by accident? Um and the the last thing I want to say about that is one of the big ad campaigns we had in the UK was AIDS don't die of ignorance. And that is kind of the enemy in Terminus, as well as the corporation we never see. But it's the ignorance of the situation. It's the ignorance of the veneer who have no idea what goes on in the Forbidden Zone. It's the ignorance of the people who are running the place that is actually the issue and is actually what's causing all the problems. So I, that's probably, it's probably not, it's not in there. I mean, I'm just going to say that, right, that is not in there. But as a metaphor for that, it does actually kind of work, I think. 
Terminus airs in early 1983. I don't have either the DVD production notes or Shannon Patrick Sullivan's website open. I would suspect off the top of my head that Terminus was filmed, well, videotaped in late 82. Hmm. It has a lot more in common with Alien because it was filmed on the remains of the Nostromo set and it also has this space jockey, which has to be an intentional uh, reference to Alien. Hmm. It would have been written as a script or as a story outline in 1981. 1981 is when Ronald Reagan is inaugurated president of the United States. And Ronald Reagan makes this policy decision. We are not going to devote a single federal dime to AIDS because it's doing us a favor. And it's getting rid of an inconvenient group that we despise and don't want to have in this country. So... There has been a scathing critique of Ronald Reagan's mishandling of the AIDS pandemic in the book and the band played on, which later mm. became an HBO original movie in the early 1990s with Ian McKellen and Phil Collins and what was an all-star cast at that time of American character actors, including Saul Rubinek, Lily Tomlin, uh, I think Matthew Modine was the lead. It's a scathing critique of the way that America under Reagan ignored the AIDS crisis and wouldn't do a thing about it. Alan Alda plays one of the scientists who's trying to come up with a cure for the disease, but he's kind of a heel. And then the end is this incredible long montage of all the actors and artists and performers who died of the AIDS crisis because the government wasn't doing a thing to help. When this book is written, it comes out in mid-83, based on a script that is probably conceived in 1981, and given that the best authors tend to recycle themselves and work with the same themes over and over again, this is probably a story that was in Stephen Gallagher's head as far back as the mid-to-late 70s. I don't know if you can read this as a response to AIDS, only because it's too early on. Yeah. Now, yeah. the Paul Cornell novel, Love and War, which comes out in late 92, is much more overtly an AIDS parallel in the way the disease spreads in the 24th century timeline than the way that Ace's gay best friend dies of AIDS off screen before the book has started and becomes a major character in the book. That's when Doctor Who finally tackles AIDS. I think you're right. If Terminus had been made a few years later, if you had separated out the end of the universe versus the healthcare arc and made the healthcare story two years later, then it might have been able to tackle AIDS. But I'm also not sure in the Doctor Who production office if that was a story that Eric Sayward or even JNT might have wanted to tell. Maybe it would have been too raw for them. Oh, God, yes, yes. No, I, I, I think that it is possibly just that this kind of thing happens with a lot of diseases, that people who catch it get viewed as impure and it's it's just a horrible way to treat people one other example of it so uh, it's a couple of other things i want to mention so there's a, a a book i read about it which was how to survive a plague by david france which described the kind of history the citizens history of aids and how it affected people and how they eventually found these uh, these drugs that could combat it um and the other one is one of the best explorations of uh, mistreating people because they are they have a disease uh, was actually, in my view, in Babylon 5, in the episode Confessions and Lamentations. Yes, yes. 
which uh, I, I, is it the Molcab in that one? Who have been? There's, uh, yeah, there's, I haven't watched Babylon Five since the nineties, but I think that's there's there's one entire alien race on Babylon Five that is completely wiped out by a plague over the course of one story. I think that's the one you mean. Yes. That's it. Yes. So it's got Michael Sheard in it and it's brilliant. And uh, yes, it, it, it's absolutely harrowing because it just takes it to the logical conclusion. Uh, it's very anti-Star Trek in its approach that uh, if they have a plague, people are going to die uh, and we're not going to be able to save them at the last minute. So so that kind of explores that extremely well. But this, but that's Terminus. It, um, it, it almost, I think it, it's horrible to say... I can see lots of ways it could be improved. It needs another draft because that's always an awful, I think that's sometimes a cop out, but it's so close to being something really special and it's just not quite there. It just needed that push and it could have been this, this really interesting thing in both the book and on TV, in my view. I will add my usual caveat. Terminus is 40 years old. It is very easy to pick apart plot holes in something that was shot in six days 40 years ago. <clears throat> so we've made some really good points, most of them coming out of your mouth. But on the one hand, it's easy to make fun of a story that's 40 years old. We've had 40 years to think about it, whereas the production team had maybe three weeks, if that. So it's easy for us to say, this is how you fix Terminus. I think and I'll do more of this in the audio essay, I think the book works a lot better than the TV. It's better directed than the TV. It has a better it has a better musical score than the TV. It gets us deeper inside the characters' heads and explains the science more than the TV does. The Garm is much better in the book because it's not a brightly lit studio with a man in a poorly designed dog costume speaking in a <laughs> received pronunciation. So... I think the book is a terrific work of science fiction. And yes, the underlying TV story could have had a few more drafts. And if the TV story had a few more drafts, then the book probably would have been even better because the book does, to, in some sense, has to mirror the structural problems of the TV. It has to mirror the thematic problems of the TV. Gallagher does not novelize some TV scenes that were probably written by Eric Sayward. I'll try and identify which ones after the break. Gallagher has scenes in the book that were not on TV that presumably Sayward made the conscious decision, decision to cut out of the script and not produce. So the book is much better. It could be better than it is, but I think as it stands, the book is much better than the television. I think the book is very much worth reading for the prose and the tone, if not necessarily for the plot and the, and the, and the symbolism. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would. There are some fantastic... I'm sure you'll pick them up in the audio, so, but there's some fantastic passages in it. There's some fantastic bits of writing even if for me as a whole it doesn't quite hang together and i will identify those after the break but before the break it is time to challenge you and i gave a thought to giving you a quiz trying to identify certain 1970s tv cartoons based on snippets from the theme song but i figured that would have been too easy and it would have been too obvious. I was hoping to surprise you with Josie and the Pussycats, but it turns out you already know it. So, <laughs> What we're going to do instead is play a game of 20 questions. Hooray!
you know the drill. I am one Doctor Who story selected at random from the archives between 1963 and 2022. Using 20 yes or no questions, you, Stephen, having already solved the problems of Terminus and having already talked to us about leprosy and the AIDS crisis and Christian symbolism, I am one story at random. You were going to guess me by 20 questions, narrowing down 60 years of televised Doctor Who. What is your first question? Right, okay. So, as we all know, the first thing to do is to guess one random story so that you instantly win, become the all-time winner, and nobody can beat you. So, obviously, I am going to say The Caretaker. Ooh, see, that's a really bold strategy, and the only person who really does it unprompted is Mark McManus. (laughs) None from the best. But while I applaud your effort... And I applaud your choice of taking, speaking of stories that have large structural problems and probably should not have been aired as they were, the the caretaker has two completely different opposite ideas and the rewrites to the original script probably made it unwatchable. Who knows how good the original script was in the first place, given who who wrote it. But no, I am not the caretaker. (laughs) And since the caretaker is likely never coming out as a novelization, we'll probably never discuss it in full on this show. So the caretaker, this may be the only time we talk about it. Question number one, I am not the caretaker. (laughs) There we go. It was covered by Flight Through Entirety recently. I think they did a good job of of actually praising its strengths and highlighting its weaknesses. So that means that I have to ask the first, like, are we, are you an old series as in 63 to 89 Doctor Who? No, I am not a classic series story. Uh, I'm stuffed then, aren't I? Okay, uh, was, uh, I, okay, so uh, was your producer uh, one Russell T. Davis? So the question is, is my producer one Russell T. Davis? Yes. The answer is yes, I am an RTD1 story. Obviously because RTD2 stories have not been released yet and therefore are not part of 20 questions. Good, question that's good. Four. Because my next question would have been, does it include stories that are uh, that haven't been released yet and we know about? So you're not. I can rule out the giggle, Wild Blue Yonder, and the Star Beast already. So that's good. That's good. I'm so excited. Um, okay. So uh, t- uh, am I a ninth Doctor story starring Christopher Eccleston? Is Christopher Eccleston in me? In you? Is Christopher Eccleston in your story? No, I am not a Christopher Eccleston story, nor am I a story with Christopher Eccleston in it. It's question five. Okay, right. Okay, well, I really narrowed it, narrows it down, as they say. Okay, um, uh, is there a um, is there a recurring monster who appears in another uh, story in this story? No, I am not a story with a recurring monster. Oh dear. Now, that is a question that has tripped up a couple of recent guests because one was a Dalek story where the Dalek only appeared in one scene and another was a story where it was a recurring monster but not one of the ones you're thinking of that it was their first appearance. Fortunately, all those technicalities are out the window. I can tell you there are no recurring monsters in this story. Question six. Okay, so no technicalities. Good. The Ogrons would be happy. Um I think that question six is going to be, um, uh, oh, hang on. No, no. Oh, my brain's gone. David Tennant. So David, I, 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 I should ask, are you a David Tennant story? 
I have never heard anybody have so much trouble asking a David Tennant question before. But the good news is all your efforts were not in vain because, yes, I am. <laughs> David Tennant's story. I think we're on question seven. Okay. Now. Is it the is it the blue or the brown uh, outfit? Uh, is it the brown outfit? Ooh, that is a good question. Potentially. I honestly <laughs> don't know off the top of my head. So for the second time this hour... We are going to go to the fact machine. <laughs> and we are back from the fact machine. So just reset the question again. Uh, does David Tennant wear his brown jacket in this story? He does not wear his brown suit jacket in this story. So since he only wore two colors, I'll say he's wearing his blue suit in this story. Ah, uh, very good. Yes. Okay. I am a blue suit story. Yeah. So I have never heard anybody, by the way, ask that as a screening question on Twenty Questions. I applaud that. <laughs> I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to memorize what Tenant was wearing in what stories in order to play this game better in the future. I am really making you work for it today, Jason. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and to my future 20 questions contestants, a good question to ask, is Tom Baker in his red coat or his oatmeal coat going forward? I want to hear that from your future guests. But back to you, Steve. Uh, it narrows it down entirely by what the doctor is wearing. However, um, this may not be uh, of sufficient help to me. So it's probably either a Martha or a Donna story because he doesn't pick up the blue coat until Smith and Jones, as far as I can remember. So but it can't be Smith and Jones because it's Dr. Dune. So I am going to start at the very beginning. And I'm going to say the doctor's daughter. Yes, oh! it is the doctor's daughter. Crap. And I was, I, I was going to, I was sweating here because you were at, you were about to ask, is, is it a Donna story or a Martha story? <laughs> And the answer was going to be yes. <laughs> <laughs> All at the same time. But I did not have to worry about that technicality. Yes, it is the doctor's daughter. Holy, I did and, not expect and that. For you, folks at, for you folks at home, the fact machine involved me going to HBO Max, which is now Max, and quickly streaming the doctor's daughter on mute so that Stephen wouldn't hear it, and having to quickly jump back and forth to find a scene with David Tennant in it. And Tennant is wearing his overcoat for much of the story, so it's hard to tell what his underlying suit color is. I paused the recording so you didn't hear it, and then I put the cute musical sting over it, but it took me an oddly long time to figure out what David Tennant was wearing <laughs> in this particular story. And Stephen and I were talking off camera. I really need to, to do a better job of memorizing what Tennant is wearing in which story. The same way that off the top of my head, I could not tell you if Tom Baker is wearing the oatmeal coat or not in any given story. I'm going to have to do a big spreadsheet as to what the doctor is wearing in each story in order to answer these questions. Excellent. Yes. But you, you managed it in the end. Uh, <laughs> there is, uh, I think um, Simon Gurria put together the Doctor Who infographic book, which has nice pictures, depending on which story of which, which story has which uh, outfit and that's 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 quite good to uh, as a reference for that. But yeah, yeah. So yeah, well, I'm very pleased to have got the Doctor's daughter in seven, which is I think is pretty respectable, isn't it? It does not break the record that Mark McManus set by guessing the story in one. Pretty much, he got to a point where he had to guess one story out of the entire 1980s, and he guessed it in one <laughs> Silver Nemesis. So you didn't get it on the first, but you did very very well. Now, next week's guest is someone who nearly failed 20 questions. The only person who has failed 20 questions is ChatGPT. Ah. Everyone else has gotten it in less than 20. But next week's guest is the only person who's almost failed. So what we're going to do now is we're going to reload the randomizer 
and we are going to see what our next guest is going to have to contend with. And I'm very, I'm very curious to see what our guest is going to do. I'm reloading the randomizer right now. Oh my goodness. I think our guest next week is going to find himself having some problems guessing next week's story. Excellent. Glad to hear it. So, Stephen, we've talked quite a bit about robots in your eyes. Where else can we find you on the internet? Uh, so, my Twitter handle is at stealexanderuk. That's S-T-E-A-L-E-X-A-N-D-E-R-U-K. Uh, robots in your eyes also has its own Twitter handle uh, at robots in eyes. So that's all one all one thing. No underscores. Right, robots in eyes. And uh, yeah, and that is pretty much the main places you can find me. I haven't I haven't moved to Mastodon. Should I move to Mastodon? Should I get a TikTok? I don't know. What do you think? My daughter is on TikTok, so I am not allowed to be. <laughs> I will tell you, my phone comes bundled with Snapchat. And when my daughter found that I had Snapchat on my phone, I was in a world of trouble. <laughs> Fortunately, I was able to prove that I've never used it. And I then was forced to delete the app. So no, you, you will never find Doctor Who literature on TikTok for the simple reason that I have a teenager who will not allow me to be that guy. Shame, 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 shame. Yes, yes. Okay, but uh, that, that, yeah, that, that's that's it. So I might, I am thinking of getting one minute clips from my podcast and putting them on TikTok and seeing if I can get the kids to listen. But uh, I, I think I'm on a hiding to nothing there. <laughs> I don't think my uh, child is a big uh, Transformers fan, <laughs> at least yet. So I'm not sure if she would be part of your target audience. <laughs> Stephen, thank you so much for elevating the show and making it a better place. We'll talk real soon. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Take care, mate. Doctor Who, Terminus, by Stephen Gallagher, writing as John Lidecker. Televised as Terminus, teleplay by Stephen Gallagher. Televised in February 1983. Paperback release date, September 15, 1983. Target book number 79. When the TARDIS console is willfully sabotaged, the Doctor's time machine becomes dimensionally unstable and begins to dissolve. The area immediately affected is the room where Nyssa is working by herself. As the creeping instability closes in on her, the TARDIS locks into the nearest passing spacecraft, and the process of collapse is halted, but there is no sign of Nyssa. Hoping that she has escaped onto the strangely deserted host liner, the Doctor goes looking for her. Whether or not he finds her, getting back to the TARDIS will be no easy business. Page 142. Races, sharing some part of their culture and history, could take for granted such things as catches and switches and dials, whilst to outsiders they became complex puzzles. No, that's not Joseph Campbell, that's Stephen Gallagher. Terminus, novelization. I'd never have been able to identify that quote out of context as a Doctor Who novel, that's for sure. Terminus is the longest Doctor Who novelization in at least eight years. My copy of Doctor Who and the Cybermen, February 1975, episode 12 of this podcast, ends on page 150, and Doctor Who and the Demons, October 1974, episode 8 of this podcast, ended on page 172. And Terminus ends on page 159. It begins on page 5, making for 155 pages of text, breaking a very long run of target books that never 
went past page 144. This is a new kind of cover in the Target Peter Davison photo cover era, what Graham Burke back in episode 76, Castro Valva, referred to as the Auto Man era. Instead of a single photograph taking up the bottom half of the cover, as in the previous several books, we get clip art, what today we call Photoshop, but what back then was probably someone using an X-Acto knife, of Peter Davison in part four, wrestling with Terminus's doomsday lever, and with Valentine Dial as the Black Guardian looming over his right shoulder, even though they never met in the story. And those two figures, who are not equally lit and who are off-center on the cover, are printed against a multicolored background, a sort of deep rose pink at the bottom of the page, fading out to nearly white at the top. This is the first Target book, then, that does not use one single color for its cover, and will also be the last such book. This is also a book, as with Gallagher's own novelization of Warrior's Gate, episode 67, to run straight through as one single section without chapter breaks. Chapters are for suckers, says Gallagher. Uh, That's a new sentence that I just made up. Makes it hard to find the cliffhangers, although not that Terminus, as produced and directed, has particularly good cliffhangers. Now we know it does play! Now we know what it's all about! This is Terminus! For all the Lazarus come to die! For all the leper shit! For all going to die! The book, on the other hand, is astoundingly well-written, and we're going to talk about that for most of the next half hour. Even if the TV scripts as directed and acted and scored don't always work, for reasons that Stephen Alexander and I broke down in the previous segment, or at least I hope we did, I'm still several days away from recording that interview as I type out this part of my audio essay, the first six pages of the book are told from Tegan's point of view and contain a wealth of sharp observations, comparing Turlow to a snake about to strike in the outback, noting how Turlow always has a way of needling you, such that you'd explode while he'd look perfectly innocent, thinking that Turlow's reaction to the impossibility of the TARDIS was all wrong, and exploring the emotional pain of Adric's death, which just occurred in the Target book immediately before this one, episode 78 of this podcast. Nyssa is introduced in the same scene, and we also get a sense of her emotional pain as the last survivor of Trocken, a depth not granted to her in most of her other books. As with Warrior's Gate, Gallagher is as much interested in his characters' emotional lives as in the plot. Turlow is introduced in the next section. Gallagher omits a lengthy Tegan-Turlow argument that opens part one on TV, which I assume was a say-word scene. Gallagher takes us into Turlow's thought processes. This will create a discontinuity when the novelization of Maudrin Undead, Turlow's TV debut, comes out in 1984. Peter Grimwade, who created Turlow, writes him differently in that book. But Terminus comes first, Turlow's print debut, and it's a memorable first appearance. As Turlow attempts to sabotage the TARDIS, he, quote, started to work on the expression of innocence he'd be using when they caught up with him. And scheming against Tegan, he observes, quote, of the three, she was the easiest to manipulate. All he needed to do was annoy her a little, and she'd jump off impulsively in whatever direction he wanted. This Turlow is sociopathic and chilling, and in a later sequence, he plans both Tegan's murder and how he'd stage the aftermath so that the Doctor would never suspect him. A fun game to play, as always, is to compare what appears in the book, but not on TV, and vice versa. 
to determine in relief which bits were written by Gallagher and which by Sayward. The physically implausible bit where the doctor throws a chair to prop open a closing door, as Stephen introduced us to earlier, is not in the book. In the book, it's Turlow who goads Tegan into exploring the Lazar patient's death shuttle. On TV, she merely runs after the doctor to chase down an odd noise. One thing to love about Terminus, book, and TV is its William Hartnell-era structure. We open inside the TARDIS, the ship lands somewhere, usually in distress so that our heroes cannot get back inside until the end of Part 4, or however many parts it may have, and the travelers get separated, then we only meet new characters when a regular does. To this end, it's not until page 35 of the novelization where we finally meet other people, Carrie and Olvir. There are more scenes in the book on TV, particularly with the Tegan and Turlow plot strand, including a neat bit, probably too similar to bits in Castor Valva, where Turlow uses beads from Nissa's broken abacus to make a trail through the Death Shuttle, only for a robot to follow along and take the beads back. Gallagher is not afraid to get into the Doctor's head to narrate the story's various crises. This gives us insight into the story that was not presented in TV dialogue and lends more convincing hard sci-fi detail, such as when the Doctor ponders the inverse ratio between the complexity of a spacecraft's controls and the level of the civilization that designed and built it. He also gives a nice insight into how the Doctor decides to stand and fight or run away. Quote, when it came to a choice between fighting and running, the Doctor preferred to run every time. Those who stayed to fight tended to be swiftly stripped of their noble illusions. The TV dialogue is abbreviated and punchier, but the extra passages in the book positively sing on the page, like this bit on page 45. The Doctor leaned fractionally towards Nyssa. She looked at him, eager to hear the plan of action that would get them out of this mess. Any ideas, he said. Whereas the TV direction is so steeped in dullness that Davison at one point in part two stares at a bank of computers with a bored expression and his arms folded, which is not exactly doctorish body language. But here, page 51, quote, she, Nyssa, knew of old that the doctor tended to sail into the darkest situations with a seamless display of confidence. On TV, it's Davison who delivers a rather bored rendition of the line about Terminus being the center of the known universe. But in the book, Nyssa gets the line, page 67, and much more enthusiastically. As with Warrior's Gate, Gallagher uses his fiction to show two things. The quotidian procedures of his future spaceship world, how ships and robots and military-slash-attack drills work, and superimposing real-life concerns on his sci-fi characters from the distant future. As to the latter point, the slaver crew in Warrior's Gate had garbage men and coffee urns and lunch breaks with pickles. Here, the Vanir have middle management and shift schedules, and the space pirates Olvir and Carrie, who are ridiculous on TV, positively ludicrous, walk through their part one raid on the space liner with Tom Clancy-esque precision, page 35. Their names were Olvir and Carrie, and they were raiders. Their entry into the liner was no less spectacular or unusual than that of the TARDIS party, and it was carried off with considerably more noise and damage. The sequence had been well rehearsed, in simulation, and on countless other real-life missions. The limited spread of the thermic charges attached on the outside instantly vaporized a ring of metal large enough for them to pass through. A high wind blew down the corridor section as air drained out through the hole, and the ventilator pumps went into overload trying to replace it, and dust and debris whirled around in the vortex between the gap as the two suited figures entered. 
Gallagher adds convincing backstories to these secondary characters, enriching them beyond their poorly acted two TV dimensions. Olvier comes from a wealthy family that went broke, and he signed on to the Chiefs' raiding party with a bonus and advance against expected loot, only to fail on this his first mission out. The part one cliffhanger on TV, as we heard, features the over-the-top screaming of actor Dominic Gard in the book. Thankfully, you will not get that screaming. The print part two cliffhanger moment is similarly missing its TV counterpart's rather cringeworthy dialogue. Let her go! Now it's your turn. Only you I'm going to kill. There's lots more dialogue in the book than on TV, between Turlo and the Black Guardian, or between Carrie and Olvir in Part 2. There's just an odd moment in my book, though, that I want to talk about a little more than missing dialogue. Page 60, where I drew a line in pencil that was clearly meant to be a cliffhanger mark. Except it's a banal moment between Tegan and Turlo during their endless bickering in the underflooring of the Terminus Death Shuttle. I have no idea why I thought that would ever be a cliffhanger moment. I'd love to know what I was thinking when I drew that, at age 12 or 13 or so. The book makes it less obvious that Nyssa is walking around for most of the TV story in her lingerie, but the scene where she's identified as a Lazar patient, and more on that Christian symbolism in a little bit, is even more chilling here, as Olvir recalls the physical act of burying his own sister, who died of the disease. Top of page 81, Olvir's hands were sore from the digging. The earth was over his head, and still they dug deeper, the shovels biting into the hard clay almost all the way down to bedrock. He stood back from the edge of the hole, and the sap scent of the garden was burned away by the sour smell of the lime. The empty bags lay by the side of the grave, and his hands were blistered now as they shoveled dark earth back into the hole. Olvir stood alone in the corridor. In his mind, he was somewhere else. This retroactively justifies Dominic Gard's unusual TV performance. On TV, Valgard says that his former pirate captain turned him in for the reward, but in the book, Valgard is pleased to recall as well that he was going to do the same thing to his captain anyway, and nostalgically recalls the double crossings as good times. Gallagher invents a cure for radiation poisoning using transmet technology, which is how the doctor intends to cure everybody of whatever radiation poisoning they've absorbed on board the Terminus. And Gallagher explains exactly what benefits Hydromel confers on its users. The hand-to-hand fight sequence between two barely secondary characters, Olvir and Valgard in Part 4, should be a snooze-fest as we have no emotional attachment to the TV characters, but Gallagher makes them understandable, if not sympathetic, and he choreographs the fight, as well as giving us Valgard's secret strategies for victory, including using all his Hydromel in one burst. On TV, we're never told just what Hydromel does other than offer vague radiation protection, but in the book, it's part stimulant, part hallucinogen. Other things happening in part four that seem to make little sense on TV have proper sci-fi explanations. The red handle by the dead space jockey in the control room is unmovable, except by the Garm, because the Terminus was a time machine and is currently in a time slip, moving much slower than the rest of the universe, and Turlo is able to get the TARDIS emergency door to materialize on the Death Shuttle because he exposes the ship's radiation, which serves as a beacon for the TARDIS. 
the Doctor comparing the inside of the Terminus to Dante's Inferno is a great example of putting the literature in Doctor Who literature. Page 94, the Doctor, quote, Dante would have loved this, a living hell, complete with armored dark angels, and one of several unusual Christian allusions, quote, like the gaze of Satan, in a book whose characters were mostly named from Norse mythology. Again, this is not a perspective we ordinarily see in the novelization, apart perhaps from Christopher H. Bidmead's frequent references to Paradise Lost in the Legopolis novelization, discussed in episode 72 of this podcast. When Iraq is introduced on pages 68 and 69, it's with very heavy Christian symbolism, with Tegan mistaking his armor for death. See also the Visitation, which features an android consciously dressed as death, and with Irak's staff tapping against the death liner floor like, quote, the hammering of the Calvary nails. After the doctor agrees to help Bohr, who's very sick, Carrie is much more displeased than the actress showed on television. You're breaking every rule in the book. Then we work by different books, says the doctor. There's a good action scene, too, unique to the book, starting on page 76, where Tegan has to pull Turlo back from a bottomless pit, lest he fall to his death. This is Gallagher's way of showing why Turlo eventually betrays the Black Guardian and joins the TARDIS crew. There's no corresponding moment for this on TV, presumably cut by Sayward from Gallagher's draft for timing and or monetary reasons. Again, Grimwade has already covered Turlo's conversion in Modern Not Dead. If you're reading the books in story order, like Tony and Dalton and Allison do over on the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast, but for our purposes, Gallagher starts off Turlo as a venomous snake and has his own way of humanizing the poor fellow. Other things Gallagher does that make Terminus far better than the video, Irak, the Veneer's middle manager, is, quote, nothing like the monster that Tegan might have expected. He was simply a tired bureaucrat, and problems tended to form long cues for his attention. Page 73. The scene goes on much longer in the book, too, establishing Irak's ruthlessness and threatening Valgard with death via the withholding of Hydromel and an order to search the Forbidden Zone if the latter continues to complain about Bohr's absence. A long scene from pages 103 to 106, Irak's bet with Valgard is darker than TV. Irak has to adjust to the companies reducing the Vanier's Hydromel supply, and no, don't stop to think about that sentence. It'll make sense if you're a Doctor Who fan. And if you're not, you likely haven't gotten this far on my podcast. But Irak has to adjust to the companies reducing the Vanier's Hydromel supply by removing one Vanier from the duty roster and their Hydromel ration. On TV, Irak bets Valgard his middle management position and tells Sigurd that he'll keep his bet. But in the book, Irak bets Valgard his own Hydromel supply, his life in other words, and his only reaction to Sigurd's question is, quote, a pained look, one that said, how could you be so naive? I can see why Sayward, if that's who it was, muted the scene for television, although you would think Sayward of all people would have preferred that darker book version. But of course, a discontinuity is created on page 154 when Valgard, who comes to collect on the bet, recalls the stakes as Irak's position, and not his personal hydromel supply. So it's hard to tell what Gallagher's true intent was. The targets, as well as they hold up, were assembly line productions and not deeply personal novels crafted over decades. Mistakes like these, while frustrating, are part and parcel of the line. And to quote Alan Rowe's line from Full Circle, we must simply accept the inconsistencies. The novelization dwells more and better on what the story is really about, not Turlow's Faustian pact with the Black Guardian, not the end of the universe, 
but about the perils of for-profit healthcare. I live in the States. That ain't science fiction. The Vanier's detachment from the Lazar patients is told in about as unflinching dialogue as you'll find in a line of kids' books. Page 83. One of the drones had managed to come up with another Lazar. It was still gripping her wrist as she stood there, wide-eyed and scared. She looked almost alert, but Valgard knew how deceptive appearances could be. The best way to keep your sanity in the Terminus was to forget that these things had ever been human. Then, when the company's radiation-resistant trained mule took them off into the zone, you were safe from any worries about what lay ahead of them. Later, on pages 109 and 110, is Irak's cold-blooded calculation for how to get the most Lazarus to survive the Terminus's haphazard radiation cure. Treat the healthy patients first, since the disease spreads so fast that the sickest patients on the liner won't even make it to the cure stage. There's that harsh critique of for-profit healthcare again. And look how Gallagher describes the GARM. We get, as you often get in the targets, a real explanation of what's only lightly implied over on TV. The GARM has immunity to high doses of radiation, coming from a planet contaminated by, quote, some suicidal war, page 90. And this is where you see just how little value Eric Sayward added to Doctor Who as script editor. For all its size, Gallagher writes, for all its size, the GARM moved in silence. Anna kept to the shadows. Even now, Valgard could only just make out its massive dog-headed outline and the dull red gleam of its eyes in the darkness. On page 145, it, quote, emerged from the shadows as smoothly as a dark sunrise. <laughs> on TV, the Garm didn't do any of that. On TV, the part three cliffhanger kind of sails by without tension, but the book, being 20 to 40 pages longer than most of the last several years' worth of targets, it all makes sense. The notion of the universe, our universe, having been created by a chance jettisoning of nuclear fuel, tremendously excited me as a kid. Remember, this isn't too much longer after I first learned about the Big Bang, and it fueled, pardon the pun. No, wait, don't pardon the pun. This is episode 79. You must know I'm never going to pass up the worst puns. This fueled most of the Doctor Who fanfic that I wrote as a tween and teen, almost all of which was lost when I recently lost most of my Doctor Who book collection, by the way. Here's an audio clip from part three. Terminus was once capable of time travel. So? Well, to push a ship of this size through time would require an enormous amount of energy. What are you getting at? Well, think about what we've learned. Terminus seems to be at the center of the universe, yes? Now, imagine this ship in flight. Suddenly, the pilot finds he has an enormous amount of unstable fuel on board. What would you do? Jettison it. Perfectly normal procedure. Unfortunately, he ejects his fuel into a void. And it exploded? Starting a chain reaction. Well, how big? Enormous. Biggest explosion of all time. Event one. The Big Bang? Yes. It isn't possible. Well, chemical reaction in a primeval swamp can create life on a planet. Why couldn't the universe be created by a similar chance factor, hmm? But exploding fuel in space, it, it's almost too simple. It only appears simple because the circumstances were exactly right. Well, if what you're saying is right, why wasn't Terminus destroyed in the explosion? Well, a pilot time jumped the ship forward before realizing how unstable the fuel was. The resulting shockwave must have caught up with him, boosting the ship billions of years into the future. Killing the pilot and damaging the second engine? Yes. If there was a second explosion, would it have the same effect as the jettisoned fuel? Not quite. Whereas the first explosion created the universe, the second would undoubtedly destroy it. And at the end of the book, on page 157, we get this gut punch. Nissa looked up at him. 
I'm not coming with you, she said. And deep inside, he'd known it. He'd known from the moment he'd seen her again, eyes blazing with righteous fury that the poor excuse for a caring process that she'd been put through. Lives were changed by such experiences, and there was no going back. Later on on the same page, quote, with some pressure, he, the doctor, might just be able to dissuade her, but he doubted it. And it would be something they'd both regret forever. It seemed that the loss of every member of his ever-changing team took a little piece of him away with them. They were spread through time and space, all of them reshaped and given new insights through their travels. Their loss wasn't too bad a price to pay, not when they gave him a kind of immortality. Mrs. TV Departure is singled out for praise in the Discontinuity Guide. It's not quite on the same level as the departures of Ian and Barbara, or Joe Grant, or Sarah Jane. This is, I think, one of the best novelization versions of a companion departure. Terminus on TV features a great story, somewhere in there, about for-profit healthcare, as well as a story about the end of the universe. The two stories don't necessarily coexist easily under Eric Sayward's script editing, or Mary Ridge's direction, or Roger Lim's music. Pick your culprit. But the book manages to, if not tie the two disparate stories together, explain them both very well, with strong added dialogue, and with sharp insights even into the secondary and tertiary characters. This is another winner for Stephen Gallagher, and sadly it's his last Doctor Who novel for 40 years, until Warrior's Gate and Beyond comes out in the target line in the summer of 2023. This is your last chance, boy. What did you do to me? You will recover. I can't go on. Kill the doctor yourself. Blame me for it. I don't care. I can't do it. You have little choice. Turn up. Turn up. He's coming, boy. This is your last chance. I shall not say that again. Kill the doctor! Next time on Doctor Who Literature, Nyssa may have departed in Book 79, Terminus, but she is back in Book 80, an adaptation of an earlier Season 20 adventure, as we continue on with our 10-book-long Peter Davison mini-season. The next story does not typically rank highly on many people's lists, and the novelization similarly does not rank highly on many people's lists, but for me, it's a sentimental favorite. It was my first cliffhanger. It was the first in a very long line of season 20 stories that made me a fan of the show, always and forever. And next week... Rejoining us from the Frankenstein Minute podcast, and from many, many episodes of Reality Bomb, and apart from ChatGPT, one of the least successful 20 questions players we've ever had on Doctor Who literature, welcome back Bill Evenson, as we visit Amsterdam and discuss Doctor Who Arc of Infinity. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature podcast. This podcast is produced by David Barsky, Jim Sangster, and yours truly. This week's episode was written and edited by me. Our logo was designed by Jim Sangster. 
Special thanks to my special guest, Stephen Alexander of the Robots in Your Eyes podcast. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Dr. Who Lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Who Novels. That's Dr. Who Novels. And on email at Dr. Who Literature. That's Dr. Who Literature at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages. Doctor Who Podcast Network.